Genesis chapter number 7. And we'll start our, our, uh, our reading this morning in verse number 13. Genesis chapter number 7. You know, one of the great things I love about the Bible is we can always see different things and different ways of reading in the Bible. Uh, you know, a, a little while ago, we did a Sunday school course on, on how, to, how to study the Bible with what you're reading. And we talked about how you can know what you're reading and how you're supposed to take it. Because, you know, some people, they'll look at the Bible and they'll ask the question, well, is this supposed to be a metaphor? Uh, is the Lord, is He speaking this as facts? Well, you know, one of the things we understand about the Bible is while, yes, the Bible is, is one book as far as its pages, it's actually 66, a, a collection of 66 different books, and they're written in different time periods, two different people, four different reasons. Uh, we realize in the Bible some of it is history. And man, if you're like me, I really like studying history. I like knowing how, how something's planned out and how we can learn from history. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes we see poetry. Man, some of the poetry in the Bible is beautiful. Uh, some of it is doctrinal. I mean, this is, this is truth. This is what we believe. This is what we hold to. This is what we die for. And then sometimes we'll read the Bible and we'll see things as prophecy. There will be future events. And, you know, the thing is, while they're written in different ways for different reasons, or reasons we can always learn something from it. Uh, we can always take it and we can, uh, we can take it in and see something that's going to be good. And today, what we're going to be reading, we're going to be looking primarily at a portion of Scripture that's history. We're going to look at something that happened and we're going to be going over some facts and, and see how that has affected us today. So while we might not be getting any, any um, looking at any deep spiritual lesson, today we're going to be learning some things about the Lord and about the Bible. So let's go ahead and look at this historic account in Genesis chapter number 7, verse number 13, as we're continuing through in the beginning. We're going to be getting into Noah's ark in Genesis chapter 7, verse number 13. The Bible says this, In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark. Two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Our Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand some things about the Scriptures today. Lord, as we've got a lot of, a lot of different facts and things that we're going to learn, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And, and Lord, help us to relish and remember in the fact of how good that you are. Lord, how you take care of those that are yours. And how you have a perfect plan. God, you're so good to us, and we thank you for it. Bless us now in this service that we have, and may we have our hearts and minds on you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, certainly, no doubt, the story of Noah's Ark is one that, is, that, that we, have, we have learned. We grew up studying this one. And I think there's probably no more iconic story than this one. I mean, you can go down to just about any store and, or and look on the Internet, and you can find a necktie that's got Noah's Ark on it. You, know, you can find children's books with, with Noah's Ark on it. And you, you can see the picture. And I know in my mind, I remember when I was a kid, seeing pictures of Noah's Ark and artists you know, drawing of them almost like a cartoon. And, and boy, you'll see the boat. 
And then on one side, you'll have a window. You have a, gir- a giraffe's long neck sticking out one side of it. And you, you'll see the, a zebra on this side. He's looking out this end. And Noah, he's there in the middle. He's got this big grin on his face. You know, we've, all, we've all grown up knowing the story of, of Noah's Ark. So today we're going to be going over a few things of this. And, and how, how Noah's Ark, the, this story has kind of, in, in a way, it's shaped the world today. And when I say the story of it, I probably shouldn't use that word quite as much as I do because it's a historic fact. You know, we don't talk about past wars as being stories. They're things that happened. And so you would, some, some might would even ask me, Preacher, do you believe that Noah's Ark happened exactly the way the Bible says it does? And to that, I would say absolutely. Absolutely. Because I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ and God in heaven, when he gave us the Bible, he gave us things very specifically. You know, whenever there's something in the Bible that's a metaphor... And so would you ask, do you believe there are metaphors in the Bible? Sure, I believe that too. But I do believe the Bible tells us when something is a metaphor. For example, 1 Peter 5.8. This is a great verse for us to remember. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, does that mean Satan himself, if I were to look out here, if he were to show up, he would be like a lion looking for who he can eat? No, because it's a metaphor. The Bible says the devil as a roaring lion. And the the psalmist and David, when he wrote about how his heart longed after God, he said, Lord, my heart, it longeth after you. The way a deer is thirsty and longs after the water brook. So, So my soul longeth after thee, O God. So yes, there are metaphors. But by the way, when the Bible uses one, It says, here it is. Look, this is a metaphor. This is what it's like. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he talks about his kingdom, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's it's similar to this. So it tells us. But when we start reading this book of Genesis, we don't see any indication there at all. It says, this is what happened. There was a man named Noah. Noah built an ark. This is how he built it. This is where the animals came in. It gives us facts. So it's actually kind of neat. He he gives us a lot of specifics to how it was built. If we were to look at chapter 6, back up in verse number 15, God told Noah, he said, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark. And in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the one side thereof with the lower. Second and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. So what did the ark look like? You know, there's a lot of different artists' depictions of what the ark would look like. Um, you know, he would, you know, some would, would draw a picture. And I've actually seen this one pretty commonly where the front would really turn way up and you'd have almost this nose on the front and it would be shaped almost like a, a U. Uh, and, and, you know, there are some people, they would say, oh, we've, we found Noah's Ark. Here it is. We, we, we know where it is. Satellite pictures show us there's this, this long box and this is right around the area. We know that Noah would have built his ark. You know, is, is it possible that the ark is around today? I mean, do they know what the ark looked like? Folks, what we do know is what's in this section of Scripture right here. We know that it, well, the word cubit, you know, that's not a measurement that we use today. But if you're doing numbers, a cubit typically is around 18 inches, roughly. Which when we do the math into, I use 18 inches and do the math into U.S. measurements, it actually works out really easily. So when the Bible says that the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, that works out to 450 feet or 150 yards. 
So if you're looking at a football field, that's one and a half football fields long, 150 yards. And so if we were to turn the thing sideways and turn it, uh, turn it wide, the Bible says after this, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits and the breadth, how broad is it? 50 cubits. So that turns out to be about 75 feet or 25 feet uh, wide. And then it ends up being about 45 feet tall. And the Bible says there's going to be, at the end of verse 16, it says inside thereof with lower second and third stories. So we know there was different levels. So some, they would say, based off this scripture right here, Noah basically built a giant box. Yeah, it could have been. Well, with just those dimensions, if the Lord said, hey, you're going to build it wide, tall, and long, that ends up being square. So could the ark have looked like a giant box? You know, it's very possible. Could it be that the Lord allowed him to put a little nose on the front of it? I mean, it could have been. Uh, I mean, but really, the ark wasn't designed as a boat to be able to go places. You know, when we think about ships that were built in, you know, the 1600s, 1700s, uh, you know, they, where they would have sails and they would have this big front. And boy, they could, uh, you know, in the 1400s, when they sailed across the ocean to get here, they had these big sails and boy, they could go places. That wasn't the ark's job. The ark was basically a life raft. I mean, Noah, your family and the animals, you're going to get inside of it. You're just going to kind of bob around for a pretty good while, and then you're going to come to a rest. And that's all it needed. So did it need to have all the extra designs to help it move? Well, no, not really. I mean, all it needed to do was float. So he said, Noah, here's the size of it. This is how big you're going to make it. And we're going to see here in a minute, there are actually some people that believe the ark was close to being too big for its purpose. And we know it's perfect because God gave them the numbers. But I mean, for the sake of how much room they have. Because again, we see on the pictures, we see you know, all these animals getting stuffed in here shoulder to shoulder with, with, with heads popping out of the windows and Noah and his family being crammed into this little room. Folks, we're going to see some really neat stuff that the Bible shows us and teaches us about how Noah did this. So we see the dimensions of it. And we also learn that Noah, he, he had to build this by, by his hands. Uh, you know, if you've, ever, if you've ever had to spend time on a job site, you were building something and you're, and you're working with your hands. And if you're like me, if you're trying to build just a kitchen table, it'll take you like four months, right? You know, it, it takes me a while to build things. I built a table once and it was in our basement forever. And finally I got it done. I was proud of it. But no, they didn't have power tools. Okay? It's not like they had saws. Everything was done by hand. I mean, they had mallets. They would have had ropes. They would have had pulleys and, and lifts. And from what we understand, it would have taken close to 100 years to build this ark. So could you imagine for that span, seeing somebody, one family out here working on something day in, day out, spending this much time to build this giant box saying, hey, water is going to fall from the sky. Because again, in a minute, we're going to see it had never rained before, ever. They didn't know, they didn't know what rain was. And so Noah, they're probably, if, if I were in this time period, and I saw, you know, some 600-year-old man, which is how old Noah was. If I saw some five, 600-year-old man out here building this giant box with his family saying water is going to fall from the sky, I would say, he's nuts. That guy has just gone absolutely crazy. But let me tell you what the Bible says. You'll not find anywhere in this scripture where the Bible says that Noah was, was witnessing to people all around him. But I am going to share one more with you. If you flip over... Uh, to, to the back of the Bible, and you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But if you want to flip with me, and I've actually wrote this in the margin of my Bible, Second Peter chapter two, verse number eight. Second Peter chapter two, verse number eight. It says this, and it's amazing. You see Noah's name way in the back of the Bible as well. Second Peter chapter two, verse number eight. 
Uh, For that righteous man dwelleth among them, and seeing and hearing vex their righteous souls from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And I have got the wrong verse wrote down. How did I do that? Perhaps it was 1 Peter. I have the wrong scripture wrote down, and I apologize. It is somewhere here in 2 Peter, and for the sake of our time and for, for, the, for the sermon itself, I'll not spend time searching for it. Verse 5. Verse five. Hey, thank you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5. Thank you, brother. The Bible tells us to believe in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5, that God, it says, And he spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, watch this, a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. So the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Noah himself, that he was a preacher. So that would lead us to believe this man that the Bible himself calls a preacher. No doubt he would have been telling people what's happening. That he would have been there telling others around him, this is what God's going to do. God is going to send judgment. God's going to send rain. But we understand that no one would have believed him. What a sad thing that would have been. So we know that Noah was a preacher. And look at what the Bible says in verse number 16. And this is also in chapter number 7. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And look what happens. And the Lord shut him in. By the way, in your Bibles, this is just kind of a neat thing to remember. If you ever see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that tells that the Bible is talking about the Jehovah God. It is always written in all capital letters. Sometimes it's not all capital letters, and sometimes that's when they would be referring to, uh, to Jesus as Lord or to another person that would be Lord. However, when you see all four letters all capitalized, that is Jehovah God. So what we see with this verse is there was, uh, once Noah and all, the, all his family and all the animals, once they got into the ark, it wasn't that Noah was sitting there looking with people and saying, hey, look, you need to come in. I'm shutting the door now. No, some people, they would believe based off the timeline of what's in the Bible that Noah and the animals, they were in the ark for seven days while nothing was happening. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the timeline would, would, would lead us to understand. And then one day, once they were inside, God himself shut the door. And once the door was shut, that was it. It wasn't going to open again. That wasn't Noah's choice to shut the door. Keep in mind, folks, the whole method of the ark, when God, when he shut the door, he was saying, it's time. God was the one that orchestrated all of this. God's the one that brought the rain. God's the one that told him uh, to, to build the ark. God's the one that brought this. So God is the one that closed the door. And by the way, God is the God of our salvation as well. And we talked about last week how how the events of the flood kind of show us what's going to happen in the future. Because the Bible says in Matthew that as in the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What God did is he said, here's my righteous people. I'm going to set them aside. Now, while you're here, I've got to deal with a few things over here. That's what's going to happen at the end of time as well. God's going to take his people and he's going to set them aside and say, okay, here you are. Here's the Christians. Here's the ones that are saved that have trusted in me. Now, while you're here, I've got to deal with some stuff over here. And folks, when is that time going to come? When is God going to shut the door on our time? We have no idea, but it's all up to him. So this is what was happening. God, he shut the door. That was his timeline. So God's orchestrating all this. Now, here's something that's really neat I want to show you too as well. There's a big 
argument over, over how many different types of animals there are. And no doubt, there's, there's a bunch of them. I remember when, uh, when I was in science class, there, there was this thing, and I hope I'm saying this right. If my science teacher is listening to this on our podcast or something, maybe she'll, you know, she'll get me if I get it wrong. Uh, but when, when we classify animals, there is a kingdom, then there's a phylum and a class and an order, then there's a family, and then there's a genus, and then finally there's your species. They, they, they divide up animals into each group. That's why they say, oh, well, the, the donkey and the horse, they would be in the same family. So, so we start to classify these things. And then there's the animal kingdom, there's the, the fish kingdom, there's different, you know, different types of kingdoms. Folks, one of the things that we see here in the Bible is they talk about how there's two of every kind of animal that was put into the ark. Now, there are people that are doing the math, and they're saying, okay, you've got a boat that's 150 yards long. You've got a boat that's a little bit wide. It's you know, three or four stories tall, or two or three stories tall. And you're going to tell me you fit two of every single species in that boat with enough food to feed them for close to a year. You're going to tell me you fit all that into that little boat. Well, first off, the Bible says it, so I believe it. I have no problem saying that. But secondly, one of the things we have to understand is that the Bible tells us, and one of the things that makes sense, is Noah didn't have to bring two of every single type of animal that we know of. Here's why we believe that. Look what the Bible says, starting in verse number, uh, chapter 6, verse number 18. We're actually doing kind of three chapters, 6, 7, and 8 today. Chapter number 6, verse number 18. But with thee, I will establish my covenant. Boy, I love that. That's when God's promising Noah that he'll establish his covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, watch this, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of creeping thing of the earth and of his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee and keep them alive. Notice, the Bible uses two different words. It says you're going to have two of every sort. And then he also says you're going to have two of every kind. So we know that there was two of each group of animal that they brought in, and they were of a specific sort. Here's what we understand. Noah would not have to bring two of every single type of animal that we know of today. Here's what I mean. Right now in our backyard, we have, we have two dogs. We have a bloodhound and we have a husky. And the husky, she is uh, she's mean and she likes the snow. My bloodhound, she is goofy and she likes to be in the woods. They're, they're, they're two different dogs. Now, are they both dogs? Yeah. Now, they're both female, but you know, if they wanted to, if one was a male and one was a female, they could have a mixed breed of puppies, and you would have a bloodhound husky mix, and I have a hard time imagining what that would look like. But that would still be a dog, right? It is amazing to see how a breeder can, can have different types of dogs. You go on the internet and you Google, you know, dog species. I mean, it is, the, the list is just unreal. Uh, I, I read this thing where a scientist, I can't, I think he was Russian? He decided he wanted to domesticate a fox. He wanted to have a pet fox. So what he did is he got a group of these foxes together, and he would breed them, and then he would take uh, the fox that was the, the most timid, and the most calm, and the one that was, uh, I, think, uh, I think, the weakest. Anyhow, and then he would breed it with another group, also of the one that was the most timid, the most calm, and then he would take those two, and then he would have, a, have another group of foxes. And then he would take those, and then he would go another species, or, or excuse me, another section of breeding, and then he would take the, uh, the most timid and the most calm of that. And eventually, I think it was only after 
four times, he came up with this fox that was so soft and so playful. He had it in his house, and he was playing with it. And it had smaller teeth, and they weren't as sharp. And he was able to take care of this fox, and it became his pet. And now he, if I remember correctly, he even sells these things as domesticated fox, just for, you know, just for pets. I'm thinking, wow. And it is, so, folks, what we see is that we have groups when it comes to this idea of evolution that people try to teach and they try to perpetuate, they would say that you could have one animal and eventually come up with another animal. You cannot take a species of fish and eventually come up with something like an elephant. It's not going to happen. It is physically impossible. I don't care how many times fish breed, eventually a fish will never be a different species. A fish will always be a fish. You might have a different color fish. You might have a different size fish. Now, that was one of the things that Darwin would always say. He went to the Galapagos Islands, and he looked at his finches, and he would have, he would have this one group of finches, and he'd say, look, oh, this group, they have big beaks, but this group, they have little beaks. Yeah, but they're still birds. Birds will always be birds. They'll never be anything other than birds. So with this idea in mind, knowing that one species will always be the same, or excuse me, one family will always be the same family, Noah wouldn't have had to take quarter horses, miniature horses, mustangs, and Arabian horses. He would have just took a couple horses. He would have took a couple dogs. He would have took a couple cats. He would have you know, taken what I honestly believe to even be the dinosaurs. That wouldn't have to have been these massive granddaddies. It could have been the little ones. But I believe he would have had all of them, two of every sort. And folks, with that, there have been, and by no means am I smart enough to figure all this out, but there have been some that have taken the most basic, the most basic root of each type of animal and figured it out. They have said with how big the ark was that Noah would have had plenty of shoulder room, that he would have even had room to spare. And that's what they, they, you know, some of these guys are, again, much smaller than I have, have, and have even come to figure out is how large it was. And so I believe at this time there was even the dinosaurs on there, two of each type of that. Uh, you know, I don't believe that the dinosaurs lived so much farther away from man that, that man never actually walked with dinosaurs. No, I believe they were together. If you were to go to the book of Job right now, we'll not turn there, but Job, he talks about this giant creature that he saw. If I remember, he called it the behemoth. He talked about how this creature was just so huge, how its, how its legs were the size of tree trunks. And then people would say, oh, that's, that's an elephant. And then a few verses later, he talks about how its tail is just this massive, long, strong tail. And you're thinking, well, if you look at an elephant, its tail is about like this. You know, my William got to ride one the other day at the circus. Yeah, it has a little tail. It wasn't an elephant. Folks, this was something that describes perfectly the dinosaurs that we see and talks about uh, the Leviathan, what they, what they have known and seen. Job didn't have a fossil record. He was looking at it, and they were writing it down. They were talking about what they saw. I absolutely believe that man and dinosaurs walked together. When they died off, it could have been because of some sort of climate change after the flood, or it could have been that just the two dinosaurs that were left, that they didn't breed fast enough and they died off that way. You know, well, we don't know. You know, there are species that die off all the time that are in danger. I mean, look at the way they had to protect the grizzly bears. They almost all died off. You know, that happens. So we, I don't have this scientific answer as to why they're not here, but I believe absolutely man and dinosaurs were together. So here's that this is how it was done. We see that there was, there was the ark. That's how it was built. We know they all could have fit in there based off of God's instructions. And then came the water. Chapter number 7, verse number 16. I'm sorry, 17. Chapter 7, verse number 17. And the flood 
was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and it was lifted above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increasingly great, increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Folks, what we understand is there was so much water that fell even the highest peak of the mountains were covered. That would mean the tops of the crazy mountains, they were covered with water, if they were there at the time. And Mount Everest, what is our highest peak that we know today? Yeah, it was covered up completely, 15 cubits. The whole world, there is some that would say, oh, well, it was just a local flood. It was something that happened just kind of in this one area. Well, if that were true, that wouldn't have accomplished God's purpose. The, the entire world wouldn't have died off. That's what God was doing. He was hitting the reset button with Noah and those that are in the ark. If it was just a local deal, that wouldn't have worked. And the Bible itself even says that the water was so greatly above the highest peaks of the mountain. Again, mathematically, that wouldn't have worked. The waters could have receded off of that. It would have had to have been the whole world. So how does, how does that work for us? What does it mean with the way this water fell? Well, again, we're, we're doing history lessons, so I, we're going to look at a few of these things. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to flip back a couple pages and read this to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse number 6. Here we go. Genesis chapter 2, verses number 6. I'm going to start reading in verse number 5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Folks, something about the climate of that day, there was no rain. That's part of the reason some people believe that there was this giant bubble around the earth of water. Some people still believe that. Some people don't. Again, the Bible doesn't give us this scientific specifics. But we know that there was no rain. And what happened is every morning or at some point during the day, they would go outside and there was so much moisture on the ground, the mist, it would just be like the dew. There was enough dew that it would water the ground. You know, we've walked outside before when there was dew on the ground. You get your shoes wet and it's almost like it's been a fresh rain. Dews can be pretty moisturizing sometimes. There was no rain yet. So now when God told Noah that rain was going to come, this was something that was new. This is something they had not heard. And there's something else that we see when it started to fall. Let's continue reading in chapter 7, verse number 18. I'm sorry, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 7, verse number 21. And all the flesh died that moved upon the face of the earth, both of the fowl and of the cattle and of the beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. All that was in the land died, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping things in the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now, notice this as well. I want to, I want to keep reading in the next few verses here in chapter number 8. Because again, this is history, so we're covering a lot. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. 
and the rain from heaven was restrained. Now, I'm going to show you something else with verse number one and two. There's a lot of people now, they'll try to bring another, hey, gotcha moment with, with the idea of, of the water. How is there enough water to cover the whole earth? And boy, if that, was, if that was real, where did all that water go? Did it really just go away? Well, I want, to, I want you to consider where water is today and where it could have come from then. You know, we don't have to, well, <laughs> here in Big Timber we do, I started to say, you really don't have to drill all that far down to start finding water in the ground, do you? There are some people, they can get, they can get a pretty good well going. I mean, they can get water that would just, just be springing up out of the ground. You go over here to Chico Hot Springs, they fill up a hot tub with it. I mean, there, there's water down in the earth. Uh, they talk about Yellowstone over here, how it's just one massive volcano waiting to happen. You, you go over and you see Old Faithful. I remember the first time seeing it. You, know, you got water shooting up out of the ground. And I was you know, taking a bunch of pictures of it and stuff. And that, that was so neat. Folks, we understand the Bible says that the rain came. Yes, that was something that was new. All the moisture that was in the air. If you've ever been to Florida, you know there's moisture in the air. That place is sticky. I mean, you can't take a shower and get dry because you'll just still be wet when you get done. There's moisture in the air. So all the molecules of water began to fall to the earth. But then look at the end, or the beginning of verse number two. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. Folks, water was coming down from heaven. All the clouds, all the water molecules in the air, they became, because we understand mist, they all actually turned to water. And they fell. And the water that was down under the ground, all those fountains opened up as well. All the, all, the, all the springs, all the geysers, all the water that was under the ground, that began to come up with the rain. And you got to think, too, I, personally, I believe at that time there probably, probably wasn't these giant patches of ice like we know today. Because what happens to water once it freezes? It swells up. It gets bigger. So could it have been that something changed after the flood when the rain actually started to fall? And then when God dried it up, if that water would have begun to turn to ice on the ends, it would have soaked a lot of that water up. A lot of the water would have went back into the ground. When the rain stopped and the humidity in the air began to come back, water would have began to evaporate and go back into the air. So yes, there is absolutely enough water on the face of the planet right now to cover the whole thing. It's just in different places. It's been in the air. It's in the clouds. It's in the ice. It's under the ground. It's all over the place. But if all the molecules we know of H2O were turned to water, it would cover it all. It's still there. So never forget, there's still water under the ground that came up as well. We think about the rain, but it was in the deep as well. So we know there is enough water, and it couldn't have been something that's local. And, you know, there are people that say, oh, there's, you know, there's just no way something that, uh, you know, th that grand could have happened. You know, it is a fact right now, if you were to go to the Grand Canyon and look at the walls, you will find marine, as in ocean fossils, in the walls of the Grand Canyon. People don't like to talk about that too much, but they're there. They would rather us believe that that was just one river that happened to carve the thing out over millions of years. But there are marine fossils in the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is a mile above sea level. There's only one way they could have gotten there. You start seeing things like that all over. Uh, there, there are things... I wish I would have brought a picture of one. There are these things called polystrate fossils. You know, and that's, that's a fancy term. That's one of those $5 words. Well, what that is, it's a tree that has turned into a fossil. I've not seen it, but they say there's a petrified tree over in Yellowstone. Maybe I should stop and see it one day. 
But what, what the scientists would have us to believe is that over the course of millions and millions of years, one layer of rock got put down. Then there was another layer. Then there was another layer. Millions of years later, then there was another layer. And that's why we have you know, all these layers. And then in each layer, you see a different, a different fossil. Down here, boy, it was, you know, it was you know, 50 million years. Then this one, well, it's only 30 million years. That's why there's the different layers. And then all of a sudden, one day, this guy, he came along, and he found what was a petrified tree. It was a fossil of a tree. One tree through like six or seven different layers all at once. So the question is, how did that happen? You, a tree doesn't last for, for 30 million years. You can't have one tree going through that many layers of time. They die before that time. So what happens is all those layers would have got put there at the same time. The next time we drive out through, you know, you start going through Paradise Valley, and you look at some of, those, some of the layers in those rocks, and you'll see those layers are curved, and sometimes they bend. You know, that's important. Because if it's a flood, that can happen. It can all bend and sway at the same time. It almost looks like a giant river bottom when you're looking at it. But if you're talking about layers that get put down over time, or maybe something that twists and bends, those rocks, they will snap. You know, a rock doesn't bend. They got put down by water. All around us, we see evidences of a flood. I read one at the Museum of the Rockies the other day. I thought this was amazing. As I was reading it, I couldn't help but chuckle. Because usually when I'm at the museum with my boys, I don't actually get to stop and read stuff. They just want to run and see the next dinosaur. Oh, look at this one. Dad, and the other grabbed my hand and pulling me around. So at one point, I decided to stop and read one. And there's this one dinosaur. It has this long neck. Not one of the tall ones. It was about the size of me. But its neck curled backwards, and its snout was almost touching its back. And so I started reading. They're trying to figure out why, but why are there so many fossils that are found this way, where they're just you know, stretching their neck and they're turning around backwards. They, they see them all over the place, and they're trying to figure out why. And some people said, oh, well, you know, it's from asphyxiation, where the muscles start to cramp up and it would have turned. But, but then that didn't make sense for this reason and this reason. And, and then one of them finally come up with the best idea they could have thought of. They said, we've got it. We know the answer. It's because they would have had to die a very, very painful death, almost like they were being choked to death and they were trying to reach for some air. And when they were doing that, they were trying to gasp and it, and it curled their necks backwards from the pain, almost like when you see a person in pain, they just, uh, they, you know, they, they bow up. And this would have been what they were doing. I said, huh, boy, that doesn't make sense with the Bible, seeing a dinosaur choke to death. You know, all around us, we see these evidences. I absolutely believe that what my Bible is telling me as an absolute fact. Folks, I believe what the Bible has said word for word. I don't believe this to be a metaphor. I don't believe it to be a local flood. I don't believe it to be something that is just a good story, which I kind of did this too. This was kind of for fun. I, I don't believe everything I see on Wikipedia. because <laughs> you know, It's on the Internet. It must be true, right? But, but I wanted to search. How many civilizations out there have different legends about, about a worldwide flood? And just as this, just again, just a quick internet search, just for fun, I found 25 different cultures from all around the world that tell a story about a man that found favor with God and that he was told of a coming flood, he had to build a boat, and then the rest of the world was destroyed and he was the only one left. And now I'm talking not just one local place like over in Asia. The American Indians had one. That They had them in Africa. They had them in Asia. All over the world, these, these ancient writings, they would have these stories passed down by word of mouth. They might not be exactly like the Bible, but all the main elements are there. Twenty-five of them. And I thought, man, if that doesn't all point back to Noah and his ark, 
I don't know what else does. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe what the Bible gives us. And we're going to finish with this. And again, I know this was some history stuff. I really like history. I want to show you something that God did as he, as he, protected, as he protected his people. Let's look at chapter number 8. And we're going to start reading in verse number 18. Chapter 8, verse number 18. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an ark unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings in the altar. And the Lord smelt a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done." While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon all the earth and upon the fishes of the sea and into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Well, folks, here's what we're getting ready to see. And I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit because of the sake of time. Look on down chapter 9, verse 13. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So what we're going to finish up with is this. We've seen, yes, there was an ark. Yes, it could have worked. Yes, all around us, there are evidences that one day that happened. And now God, he made a promise. He made a covenant with Noah. Even before the flood came, God looked at Noah and said, Noah, through you, I'm going to fulfill my promise, which we know that was Jesus Christ. He had already made that that promise was going to come. He said, I'm going to fulfill that with you. And now there's this new time getting ready to come where, where humans are going to start governing themselves. It's almost a whole new era coming into place where the Bible talks about how animals, they're going to be afraid of mankind, which really they are. You know, it's kind of funny. If you're, if you're walking through the woods and in the right context, you know, every animal you see, they're going to run from us. Yeah, that's something even the Bible is saying here, or they'll attack us even out of fear. And then God, he looked at Noah and says, Noah, I'm going to promise you this. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. My family is going to come through you, is what Jesus was saying. And then he said, I'm going to make this promise to you as well. I will never again destroy the world with a flood. He did not say no more floods. He said he would not destroy the whole world with a flood. That's what's never again going to happen. And, you know, we know, we know floods still happen. You know, Justin and I were just talking this morning about the bridge that got taken out, you know, down here was over by Powder Springs, I think. And, and then we know that, you remember back in 2005, Hurricane Katrina. Wow. And we, we see the destructive power of water. God never said no more floods. He said, I will never again destroy all flesh with water. And what he did to prove that, and again, another reason that some people believe in a change in the atmosphere is because now they're going to start seeing rainbows. 
They'd never seen that before. I mean, they, they had never known the way that the light can bend water, or excuse me, the air and water can bend light. And boy, you see a rainbow. And how, and how beautiful those things are. Ladies and gentlemen, every time you go outside and you see a rainbow, I know usually my first thought is, wow, that's really pretty. And then sometimes we think about, okay, where's the pot of gold? You know, and we'll kind of joke with that. But folks, the rainbow is God's promise. A rainbow is something that God made. God put that there for us as a reminder that number one, he takes care of his people because that reminds us about the flood and how he took care of Noah. But number two, his main point was, I'll never do this again. I'll never want to have to do this again. I will never destroy the whole world with a worldwide flood. Now, there is going to be a time when God comes back. He's going to take care of his people. And he's going to judge those that have willingly chose to deny him. That's going to happen. But it's not going to be with a worldwide flood. It's going to be, it's going to be different. But folks, God, he made that promise. So there was a covenant that God made. And by the way, if you ever read Romans, because we did a study on Romans last year. If you ever read through Romans chapter number 12, the Bible talks about how there was a time when the whole world knew who God was. And if today there is somebody who doesn't know who God is, it's because they chose to forget about it. That's what just happened. What happened is God, when he set that reset button, Noah, Ham, Sham, Japheth, and Noah and Ham, Sham, and Japheth's wives, when they stepped out of the boat, the entire world population knew and worshiped God. Think about that. They knew who God was. They loved him. They built altars to him. They, they worship the Lord. Now, how is it that all across the world today, we see groups of people who don't even know the name of God? They don't know who Jesus is. It's because somewhere along the line, generation after generation after generation, they decided they weren't going to honor God anymore. It wasn't important to them. And then a few more generations, they decided they were just going to do their own thing, and there was going to be no God. Folks, that is a sad commentary to the way humans work. It's a sad way to think about how things have ended up. But at this time, where we're leaving our story, where we're leaving our historic account today, is that at this point, the whole world knows and worship God, and God kept his promise just as he said it would. So if we could, we're going to stop there. We'll have every head bowed, and we'll have every eye closed. As we stop and meditate on just how important to us as God's children, Noah and the ark is, now, while we think about it as a, good, as a good tale that we tell our children about, as we tell, tell them about how powerful God is, and, and boy, what a wonderful thing it is to think about how Noah was in the boat with all those animals. Folks, at the same time, it was a great tragedy. The entire world was shrouded in death because of sin. Let's remember, and maybe if we could learn a lesson today, it would be the destructive nature of sin. And if we can to keep sin out of our lives as much as we can. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, our Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And we're so thankful for this story, how we can learn that, that you take care of us, that you take care of your own. Lord, you know your children. You know the righteous. You keep your promises. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to abstain from the sin that's destructive and the things that can come into our lives. And may we want to honor you with everything that we do. So with every head bowed and with every eye closed, this is just a time where we'd like to give folks a moment to do business with the Lord. I don't know what the Lord would have spoke to you about this morning. I know mostly we talked about the history and how we can believe it, how we stand on it, 
how we can take God at His word. Maybe this morning you've, you've found it difficult to believe things found in God's word just because of how many attacks there are on it. Some of the proclaimed smartest people of our day, they refuse to believe God's word. But I would rather stand on this book that's been around and will be around forever than on the wisdom of a man. And maybe even this morning we can take comfort in knowing that God will keep His promises. That He'll take care of us. His children. Oh Lord, again, thank You for giving us such a beautiful day today. Lord, I've loved spending time and studying the book of Genesis. Seeing how things have come to be as they are today. And Lord, these are things that we're going over that can be talked about so much more than the surface that we've scratched here today. I pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to take the Bible as it is, to believe what we see, to believe what we read. Lord, I know that Satan no doubt would love nothing more than to discredit the Bible. And no doubt he's tried. But I ask that you would give us the faith to believe what's written in your holy book. And Lord, thank you for it. Bless us now as we get ready to depart and as we go our separate ways. And and Lord, above all, may we seek to honor you with our hearts and with our lives. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name. Amen.